Welcome to episode two of the Big Conversation podcast from Freshfields. In this episode, we take a deep dive into future risks with Mohammed El Arian, former chair of President Obama's Global Development Council, former CEO of PIMCO, and current president of Queen's College, Cambridge. With the world going through unprecedented economic, social, and political change, Mohammed's ability to scan the horizon for key issues global businesses should have on their radar is invaluable. Here he's joined by Freshfields partners Ayman Mir and Eric Ma to discuss everything from US-China relations to the spectre of rising inflation. Hello, I'm Eric Marr, and I'm your host today, alongside my partner, Ayman Mir. Now, Muhammad has, it's fair to say, a, a very broad perspective as an economist, an academic, a business leader, and as someone who spent time in government. So we kicked off things by asking him to explain how he sees the world. So let me just start with context setting, if I may. I um, do a lecture um, at a business school on decision-making under unusual uncertainty. Not uncertainty, unusual uncertainty. And before the pandemic, I used to have a list of nine or 10 things, and I would ask the question, imagine four years ago, I would have predicted all these things. What would we have thought of me? And the reality is that four years early, the probability of each of these events was de minimis. The combined probability of all of them happening was basically as near zero as you can think. The US going from the champion of free trade to the most protectionist advanced economy. The election of President Trump, Brexit, an attack on Saudi oil field that takes out a good uh, part of their production. And the list goes on negative interest rates, the notion that you lend your money and you pay for the privilege of lending your money. There wasn't a single economic book that suggested that. And yet that was reality. And that was before the pandemic. So if you look back, there are fundamental structural changes going on that are delivering unthinkables. We need to realize that unthinkables are not really unthinkables anymore. I'm an antitrust lawyer and wondering, in the U.S., we see this um, kind of big government, greater regulation focused on some of the leading industries in the United States, U.S. technology and U.S. pharmaceutical industries. And I wonder how you explain that kind of combination of protectionism and deglobalization with what I at least see as a trend of greater regulation in the United States. So as you rightly say, Eric, there's two trends going on, one at the national level and one at the global level. And in fact, they are interconnected um, in a strange way, although they don't seem to be um, at first sight. At the global level, we've had significant increase in firm concentration. Um, it has happened in technology, where the big has gotten bigger in pharmaceutical, but it has also happened in retail. Think of Amazon. And there are incredible returns to scale going on. So we are dealing with increased concentration, increased power, and increased systemic importance. That's particularly the case in tech, where tech has really impacted the economy, social interactions, political interactions, institutional setups, and governments are responding. That's what's happening at the national level. 
When you have multiple governments doing it, what you get is a process of deglobalization because there's no coordination that goes on. So different countries take different approaches. You see this in regulation. You even see this in the relationship between government and tech. I can compare China, the approach that China is taking to the approach the U.S. is taking. So ironically, when you get governments responding and doing it in an uncoordinated fashion, you also inadvertently undermine a multilateral process that is already threatened by protectionism, that's already threatened by a sense of marginalization of local populations. And whenever you marginalize, it's very easy to blame the foreigner. Um, and governments themselves have become more, more protectionist. So I think these are two tendencies that are going on. And, and big government is with us for a while. And we need a positive um, shock to press play again on globalization. Otherwise, the pause button um, will be on for quite a while. Well, let's begin with this decision by the UK government, a reversal of its position on Huawei. The Chinese firm is now barred from any part of the UK's new 5G network. Earlier in the year, the UK said Huawei would be barred from elements of the network deemed sensitive for security reasons, but it had been cleared to contribute to 35% of it. Today's announcement says all Huawei equipment must be gone from the network by 2027. Here's the UK Culture Minister, Oliver Dow. So one of the drivers of a lot of international policy these days is the U.S.-China relationship. And we seem to be, over the past few years, in a continual series of events from China tech policy to U.S. reaction to that policy and 5G pandemic-induced supply shortages, Chinese actions in Hong Kong. Where do you see this going and what's, what's at the end of the path? So I think the tensions will prevail for now. There are genuine reasons why these tensions will prevail, and there are bad reasons why these tensions will prevail. Um, I don't think that that in itself will derail either the U.S. or China or derail the global economy. Um, but where there is risk, and I think it is something that people haven't focused enough on, is what I call the dual option countries. They are the countries that rely on the United States for national security and that rely on China for economic prosperity. So think of Australia. Australia is a perfect example of that. It is what's called the Five Eye member. Those are the five intelligence agencies that collaborate very closely with each other. US, Canada, United Kingdom, New Zealand, and Australia. And that is really important um, amount of collaboration on national security. But for a long time, Australia also saw China as its major market. And that dual option was a very good strategy because the cost of it was very low. That has changed completely. And if you look at what has happened this year to Australia, in particular its economic relationship with China, you'll see that that approach has become vulnerable. So if you look around the world, there are many countries that are pursuing these dual option approaches. And the one question they do not want to be asked is choose. Choose which side you want to be on. Um, and if they are made to choose, um, they will face a difficult period because you cannot replace something with nothing. 
And there's nothing to replace the U.S. on national security. And for quite a few countries, there's nothing to replace China in terms of economic linkages. To what extent do you think that companies also will be faced with that question? Companies, of course, would rather avoid having to stake out a position for or against the U.S. or for or against China. But governments on each side are making that increasingly difficult through sanctions regulations, through foreign investment regulations, through other tools that are being developed to make it more difficult for companies to essentially buy into the regulatory regime of one or the other country. What options do companies have going forward to manage the the tension between the U.S. and China? So, Eamon, you're absolutely right. And and you see the, the approach towards China evolved by American companies. It started out that China was a great place to produce, low cost. It then became a great place to produce, but a great place to serve because China's development process accelerated and you suddenly had the coming on stream of one of the largest consumer markets. So the old model, the original model, is you interact with China across the value-added chain, production, consumption. Then it evolved where it became more problematic to use China to supply other markets because of different standards, because of different approaches to the environment. So what you've seen companies evolve to is a model in China for China. Yes, we're going to be in China. Yes, we're going to produce in China, but we're going to mainly serve the Chinese market. And that was an evolution. Now, the people that I'm in touch with are taking it one step further and considering it seriously, whether you can spin off your Chinese activities, make them a local Chinese company, and be protected against um, geopolitical and other risks um, that you you can face as an American company. But in the process, we're getting further and further away from unfettered multilateralism. Do you see a return to multilateralism or, or do you think that uh, with Trump's election and his four years um, in office, uh, they revealed something about uh, the character of America that the rest of the world just won't be able to unsee? So, so I do think that the rest of the world has lost some faith in U.S.-led multilateralism and this notion that the U.S. would, would become so inwardly looking um, came as a shock to many people. But I do think that that's recoverable. My great hope, Eric, is that the pandemic, where the lack of multilateralism has shown that we are all vulnerable, this will, will prove that in, in the sort of world we live in, um, there is actually no alternative to multilateralism. There is no alternative to policy coordination on common issues, be they public goods, or be they common risks. The US is fundamentally wired for multilateralism. The dollar is the reserve currency. The US financial markets um, intermediate the savings of the rest of the world. Um, The US is really at the core of multilateralism, and if it decides to go regional, it will lose out on quite a bit. We no longer live in the world that we are wired for. What does it mean to say that we're not wired, and what are the consequences of that? 
Um, so the first implication of us not being wired is in the financial systems. Higher inflation typically leads to higher interest rates. Inflation came in above expectations at 4.2% in October year-on-year. Year. It's the third straight month. He has also been running into a new economic reality, inflation, as prices in the U.S. surge more than they have in 30 years, according to new data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And as the holidays approach, Americans are seeing higher prices. ...about the inflation picture in the U.K. He said the reason he didn't... We have many companies that have survived by being what are called zombie companies. They borrow very cheaply at very low interest rates. They use what they borrow to pay off um, interest payments. They're not getting more viable. They're getting less viable. But this thing keeps on going um, because the cost of borrowing is so low and, and people are starved for returns in a low-yield environment. Once you take interest rates higher, you start exposing um, these sectors that shouldn't have been funded at such low interest rates. Um, we saw that happening with mortgages in, in 2007. And it's this notion that Warren Buffett introduced that when the tide goes out, you discover all sorts of things about how people are dressed. So that's the one element of, is that the financial system for years has gotten used to um, low interest rates. The economy has also gotten used to low interest rates. Um, and the risk is that if you shock it too severely with high interest rates, then you get a self-feeding cycle between financial volatility and economic volatility. And that's the sort of thing you don't want to have because you, it creates a lot of unnecessary damage. Almost consistently, the poor lose because they cannot protect themselves against inflation. The rich can protect themselves against inflation. The poor cannot. You know, the rich, their, their consumption basket is a very small percent of their income. They have lots of savings. Um, food. Look at how much food occupies among low-income people. Petrol. Look how much petrol occupies among low-income people of their budget. We are already in a divided society. Um, there's been a, too much alienation or marginalization of, of people. There's a sense that we're dealing not only with the inequality of income and wealth, but we're dealing with the inequality of opportunity. And if I take your opportunity away from you, you will get angry. And if you get angry, it is likely that you will become a single-issue person. And then you become a single-issue voter. Then we get extreme outcomes. And that's why if you look around the advanced economies, you'll see that they're becoming more and more polarized. The center is very difficult to occupy these days. And, and you get pushed to the extremes. I focus on national security and foreign investment review. And some of the trends that we certainly see is that technology is and security are becoming more interconnected, meaning that a couple of decades ago, government may have been driving innovation in areas that were key to security. But these days, it's, it's companies that are developing the technologies that governments view as critical to their future, which creates an incentive for governments to further regulate these areas. What does that mean for sort of the economy going forward if the government perceives key drivers of economic innovation and technological innovation as being 
the key areas of government regulatory interest as well. I mean, there's two complexities here and, and they've played out in tech and they're starting to play out in, in decentralized finance and crypto and everything else, exactly the same dynamic, which is that a set of really, really good entrepreneurs pursuing um, a very valuable objective becomes systemically important at a rate much faster than not only society expected and governments expected, but also they themselves expected. So they start changing things. They never set out to do that. They just enable that by, by the extent of innovation and disruption that they cause and not recognizing their systemic importance. Now, governments will wake up to that. And then governments start playing catch-up to that. And that dynamic is playing out in tech and it's going to play out in crypto. And the answer to that is that both sides should talk to each other much earlier, much, much earlier in the process um, to, to minimize the, the, the ugly side of innovation. Every innovation I know of has, an, has, has a dark side to it um, that we have to be careful about in, 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 the, in decentralized finance and, and crypto's illicit payments. But what makes life even more interesting is that we have two very different models to the interaction between government and technology. You have China, whereby the overlap is huge, and the U.S., whereby there's still mutual suspicion on both sides. Now think about how do you run a global system with two different models, two completely different models. And that also adds to the complexity, and you saw it play out in 5G, the Huawei um, issues. These are just complexities that we're going to have to work through. The good news is they're born out of excited innovations. The bad news is that we weren't ready for these innovations, so we're playing catch-up now. It seems to me there's a relationship between the global economy and a global pandemic that creates risks and opportunities for, for virtuous circles or vicious circles. What do you see leading to virtuous circles and what do you think the risks are leading to vicious circles? So Eric, I'm really glad you asked about both because people tend to focus only on the vicious um, circles and there is these virtuous um, circles. So I'll take a simple example. What vaccine discovery and um, development has taught us about private-public partnership. It is incredible. You know, we have struggled for a long time to make PPP, public-private partnerships, work. And the vaccine development gives us a great example of how, these, how they can work and how you can construct it for it to work. Um, the, the source of collaboration we've seen cross-border among scientists, the greater respect for professions that are absolutely key What's happening in decentralized finance, the ability to provide um, especially low-income people with the financial tools they need to unleash their productivity. The typical African country, banks penetrate 30%, phones penetrate 70%. Turning your phone into a wallet, the amount of, of disruptive financial innovations in Africa is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So th there's a lot of really exciting things happening um, that we tend not to, 
not to concentrate on. Multilateralism. We're starting to realize um, that multilateralism is really important. How could we have messed up the global distribution of vaccines the way we have? What's wrong with our systems? What's wrong with the WHO? What's wrong with the IMF? What's wrong with the World Bank? Um, we just need follow-up. So I'm really excited that we, ha- we have this upside risks if only we can sort of keep focusing on them and try and pursue them. On the vicious side, um, I've, my greatest concern is that as long as we, we have this amount of dispersion in the availability of vaccines, the notion that no one is safe until everyone is safe will be repeated over and over again. Um, and the latest variant coming out of South Africa is an example of what happens when we don't care enough about the better distribution of vaccines around the world. So I'm worried that we will end up prolonging the pandemic, Um, not because we can't deal with it, but because we live in such an uneven world that it is the weakest part of our world that not just suffers the most, but has spillovers and spillbacks onto even what seems to be the protected part of our world. A really extraordinary breadth of content there from Mohammed. What struck you the most? Yeah, a couple of things. First, on one of the latter points that he discussed on on China and the U.S., I mean, he noted that tensions are likely to persist. And to a degree, it seems like that's actually a point of predictability and that the real unpredictability is with respect to third countries and companies in third countries. You know, to what extent are they going to be forced to make a choice and what are their choices going to be and what impact is that going to have on multilateralism and uh, broader relationships between countries and how countries manage the evolving set of concerns that arise in today's economy, which brings me to the second point. I mean, he made this observation that the unthinkables are not really unthinkable anymore. And in that regard, governments are seeming to have to grapple with issues that they're not well equipped or prepared uh, to, to deal with. And there's a risk of mistakes being made along the way that could have significant consequences. I agree that point, the way he listed the number of unthinkables that we're, we're, we're facing as day-to-day reality now is really extraordinary. Uh, the challenge in a world where there's such a mistrust between government and industry, on the one hand, especially in the United States, uh, in my area, in the antitrust uh, area. But on the other hand, the the degree to which the public-private partnership has been, I think, in the end, fairly successful in dealing with a, a, a really extraordinary challenge in, of COVID. Uh, and that gives some reason to be optimistic in these difficult times. Agree. So, so how does this play into the advice you're giving clients? In a couple of respects. I mean, first, as companies are considering deals or they're considering uh, their operations, I mean, they really need to think about how the tensions between U.S. and China play out in the context of their transaction and their business activities. Often decisions that a company makes today will have an impact on transactions and the government's view of transactions that they want to enter into down the road months or or years down the line potentially and how 
the regulatory environment may create uh, risks and vulnerabilities to their operations going forward.